Uh, this is a sermon I was going to preach anyway, but as this week unfolded, it felt even more, uh, even more fitting in some ways. Um, so I want to just, right, we've named some of these things, but I just want to take us through some of the like context of what we're experiencing and to know that what happened this week, uh, it's the context is actually, we can't even mourn let alone recover from one tragedy before the news rolls out about the next one, right? That's the relentless. It just feels like waves hitting over and over again. I learned this week um, uh, from some of the Asian American women activists I uh, follow on Twitter that in um, Korean mourning tradition, uh, you mourn for three years when you lose a parent. And so one of these activists said, no, I don't think that means we need to mourn for three years about everything, but that's just, that's the contrast of what my culture talks about when it comes to mourning versus what I think American culture thinks about mourning and grieving, right? And then how do you even do that? How do we engage with that when it feels like the waves keep crashing? Um, so some of the context that we all experienced this week is that uh, this week was the defense attorney. Uh, defense presentation of their case, right, in George, the trial of George Floyd's murderer. That's just in the air around us. Um, and what happens in these cases is that the victim uh, who cannot speak, who cannot share their experience, right, is is uh, set up as actually the cause of their own harm, of their own violence, right? They're made to be blamed. That was on on display this week. We are less than a month or right around a month from um, the horrible shooting at the Atlanta spa uh, that predominantly affected Asian American victims and Asian American women in particular. Um, that was followed quickly by the Boulder shooting. Um, in the midst of that, we are in a moment of unprecedented state legislation um, in terms of anti-trans laws that are being passed um, that are primarily targeting um, people and specifically children who want to feel freedom and like their body is their home. That's at the root of this, what's at stake in those things. And then Sunday night, I started seeing on Twitter, right, trending hashtag of someone named Dante Wright. And then by Monday morning, the reality of that uh, police murder came out. The world was erupting around that. And then um, Later in the week, we find out as the footage, as Nate mentioned, is released, the shooting of Adam Toledo, a 13-year-old in Chicago. Um, the mayor and the police and the DA held that footage because they didn't want uh, they didn't want what would happen next, right? Which is the anger, um, the grief of an entire community and communities in Chicago and across the country. Um, and as if that wasn't enough, right? Then we find out there's a mass shooting in a FedEx building in Indianapolis. 90% um, of the people employed in that facility are Sikh. Um, Sikhs are the fifth largest religious group in the world. Um, many of them come from the Punjab state in India. So uh, four out of the eight people who were killed were Sikh. So this impacts another community in the Asian diaspora. Um, and then Friday afternoon, uh, in terms of things being brought really locally for those of us in Portland, Friday morning, I'm getting texts from Bonnie, who's at Lentz Park, saying um, the police have killed, right, what appears to be a white or white presenting houseless man in Lentz Park that she had interacted with. Um, his body laid out for four hours um, before anything was done to offer dignity, right? Um, it it's a mess, but that's the backdrop. So many things, one wave after another. 
Um, and it just made me think about how uh, when you think about where you hear all of these people, all of these bodies who have had uh, violence done to them in one form or another, um, the reality is that the deadly violence of white body supremacy is unrelenting. It's bloodlust knows no end. And I use that phrase white body supremacy um, specifically. It comes from um, a man who comes out of the... Uh, trauma therapy field. His name is Resma Manakim. And the reason he talks about white body supremacy instead of just white supremacy is because sometimes when we hear white supremacy, it feels like an intellectual thing or it's a way I think about other people. But when he talks about it, he wants us to think about the physical realities about how certain bodies in our in our world, in our society, are treated as having value and dignity and worth and other bodies are not. And so in our system specifically, uh, bodies are disposable, right? Bodies that are not white, cis male, heterosexual, right? Those are the bodies that are deemed the top, the most supreme. Bodies that fall underneath that, right, in a hierarchy, then are seen as disposable in various ways. This even shows up in the ways um, cases around police accountability play out. So it is more common that you will be prosecuted if you are a person of color or a woman who is a police officer who has killed someone than if you are a white male police officer. That's just some of the statistics. Um, body supremacy plays out in those and even how accountability goes forth. So the last year has felt like the evidence is overwhelming about which bodies matter and which ones don't. And even in that list I highlighted, um, it includes the erasure of indigenous stories Right, Our indigenous neighbors have the highest per capita um, of police killings of any racial category in the U.S., even though they are the smallest in the population overall. It also doesn't count um, for the murders of black trans people who get almost zero media coverage. So talk about whose bodies matter and whose don't in this system. Those are the extremes. Um, and this feels like a jarring contrast to rethink about all that, to even name all of that. And remember that in terms of the church calendar, we're in the season of celebrating Easter, right? Life and resurrection. And part of what we're celebrating at Easter, perhaps most of what we celebrate at Easter, is that we're told a story about Jesus's bodily resurrection. So God puts on flesh to dwell among us, experiences physical torture and a brutal death, some of the very worst stuff that humans that we've come up with to enact on one another's bodies. And then rather than the resurrection just being about something ethereal, right, where Jesus floats away like pixie dust or on like a rainbow explosion into the sky, he returns in his body. His full physical self walks around for more time. And that struck me as mattering this week. The more I think about it, the more it made me think uh, that perhaps what we need to sit in today is about the goodness of bodies and the way that that is made evident by Jesus's resurrection and the way that challenges the system that we live in that is constantly telling us a message about disposability of bodies and whose bodies are more disposable than others. The goodness of Jesus's resurrection counters that narrative. And it's so good, right? I think that that image or that idea that bodies are good, um, it's such a good message that it is making me examine all the ways that my spiritual formation downplayed or even denigrated the roles of bodies, right? The way that 
that's not as important um, compared to the spiritual things. Um, our very real and physical existence is supposed to take a back seat in some ways. So here are some of the messages that I internalized, right, in my faith communities or from people with spiritual significance in my life because of what was said directly or what was modeled. Um, I heard that bodies are a problem, especially when it comes to sexuality. Um, this sounds kind of silly, but I remember as a teenager grappling with the fact that because I was hearing so many sermons, right, about what I was or wasn't supposed to do with my body from youth group, um, I actually felt not very excited for Jesus to come back if it meant I wouldn't get to experience sex, right, in the proper context, because that felt like a big deal to teenage me. Um, it's not uncommon for people who are raised in purity culture like I am to go on and interact with therapists uh, who say that folks raised in purity culture actually so show very similar shame and trauma responses to folks who experience sexual abuse. That's the level of shame that is um, taught and internalized by the message, the repeated message that our bodies are a problem. Um, the second message I heard was that bodies needed to con be controlled in some ways, right? Bodies are chaotic, so we've got to make sure they're controlled, whether that's regarding sexuality, whether that's regarding um, diet culture, right, and the way we punish our bodies and beat them into submission for not conforming to a certain shape um, or acceptable standard of beauty. Bodies, the other message I heard is that bodies aren't really that important. It's what in your, it's what in, it's in your heart that matters. And only Jesus knows that. Um, and all of this is leading up to some kind of afterlife. And that's when the real living begins, right? So it's hard to prioritize our physical selves if so much of the message is about, well, at some point your physical self is not, it's just not the whole game. It's not um, what's as important. Um, I've been rethinking all of these things, both in becoming a parent and as I've thought about what are messages about bodies that I want my kids to hear first. And primarily it's that I want them to know that bodies are good. That's the first message I want them to know. I want them to internalize a sense that their own bodies are good. I want them to feel free in their bodies. I want them to learn to listen to their bodies. I want them to be a friend to their own body. And out of that, I want them to be a friend and a neighbor um, and a good relative to the other bodies they will encounter in the world, right? I'm also learning um, about the limits of a spirituality that doesn't know how to prioritize bodies. And this is especially true when we think about communities experiencing a different life because of the bodies they were born into. Um, some of my work right now is in coaching um, women on their leadership journeys. Uh, and two of the women I'm coaching right now um, are black women who are in their 20s, who are navigating white dominant spaces. And as we've talked about some of the tools that I can give them around their internal realities, how do they take feedback? What are the uh, asks they want to make of the leaders in these spaces? Um, one of the women responded and said, this is good, right? I can think about how to take feedback or how I listen to my inner critic. But at the end of the day, there's still a white man somewhere whose choices and words and actions will impact my bodily reality, my material experience of the world. What do I do with that? And I realized in some of those conversations, I don't know, right? I don't have an experience that understands how to grapple with that. I wasn't given a spirituality that knows how to grapple with that and walk with people through that. So where I've been sitting this week is that Jesus is born 
Jesus lives, Jesus dies, and Jesus is resurrected. And in each of those experiences, it involves his body. And so I take this to mean in part that bodies are good and they matter a great deal. So our scripture for this morning comes out of this moment after resurrection. Um, I'm going to read it for us and invite us to just to sit with these words as we hear um, about part of Jesus's bodily experience after his death and resurrection. This comes from Luke 24, verses 36b to 48. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus is it, it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are all witnesses of these things. This is the word of the Lord. This scripture is packed, right? A lot of different directions you can go with this. I'm just going to name very clearly that I went in a very narrow and specific direction because that is what was resonating with me this week. And that is that I was pretty fixated on this, these images of Jesus showing up in bodily form, proving by eating fish, right? That he was indeed a physical body and not a ghost, right? That he still needed food. He, uh, his body was still digesting. Um, and I notice that in this moment, right? Because of that, Jesus shows up in a physical body and goes out of his way to prove that it's a real human body. And practically, that makes sense if he's trying to help them understand that he's not dead or he's not a ghost, right? The text tells us that. But on another level, it feels significant that this is included as part of the story. And again, we don't just skip away to the floating away on the clouds. If Jesus's embodied experience, even this part post-resurrection, is meant to communicate something, if, if it is about the, uh, the goodness of bodies, then where along the way uh, have we taken in, right, beliefs and messages that downplay the goodness of bodies, right? Or that we are not able to navigate the complexity of that. Um, one reason for this is because we uh, inherit, right, Western philo philosophical frameworks about something called dualism. So Dr. Randy Woodley, who uh, Megan was out there at Elahay, so got to interact with Dr. Randy and Edith, um, he's, he has great articulation about what dualism is um, in his some of his books, right, in his teaching, and how uh, it, it's a contrasting worldview um, compared to indigenous teaching. But some of the worldview that's created by dualism is that it's a world of opposing binaries, like body and spirit. Those two things uh, are set up as opposites rather than somehow things that are integrated and one is not more important than the other. Um, 
So from indigenous teaching, there's more of a sense of interconnection, interdependence, uh, less binary thinking. So dualism comes to us from the Greeks. Um, and one of the costs of the early Jesus following community quickly losing its connection to its uh to Judaism and its deep Jewish roots is that Greek thinking dominates how theology is formed in Western spaces. So I think usually we think about what happens in the early church and the spread of the gospel and how quickly and rapidly and widely it spreads. And we look at that as only a good thing. One of the costs of that is that in losing Jewish tradition and teaching and a more interconnected understanding um, and worldview is that um, Greek thinking dominates and it's a thinking about binaries, right? And things being separated and in two distinct categories. So the way that played out in early church teaching was that there was a, um, a branch of false teaching that was called out um, that was practiced by this group called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics took dualism to an extreme and basically said, your body doesn't matter at all. Like all that matters is spirit. All that matters is um, a spiritual life disconnected from your body and the life that is to come. So you need to only be worried about that. So early church leaders condemned the this Gnostic teaching. They called it a heresy. Um, but that strand of thinking in part is what allows, right? It's deeply entrenched in European worldviews across many, many ethnicities as it grows and spreads. Um, and it's part of that thinking is what allows European uh, powers to colonize most of the world, literally bringing hell on earth to the people they encountered, right? Committing bodily atrocities that are too numerous to count. So think about that, right? European Christians did the things that they did, which were to physically torture, mutilate, and maim folks, um, believing that these people were bound for hell anyway because they were heathens um, and felt just fine about that behavior because they felt like they were on their way, right? These European colonizing powers were on their way to a blessed afterlife. Um, and it didn't matter what they did to human, to human bodies they deemed disposable and less acceptable, right? Now, they didn't apply that same thing to themselves, um, but they felt fine about that. They felt justified um, in the disposal of bodies and they had no qualms uh, or they, they didn't question whether eternal life was still awaiting them after committing those atrocities, right? Huge, huge disconnect. Um, but we don't have to look back, right, to the 16th, 17th centuries or before uh, to see that what we believe about bodies has some real life and death consequences for people in the world. We see that every day. So I don't think that Western expressions of Christianity ever lost that Gnostic flavor. <coughs> excuse me. I think it shows up. Oh, gosh. Excuse me again. I'm just going to get a drink. I think that strand of deep discomfort around physical bodies and the chaos of our bodies and the ways sometimes we feel like our bodies are out of control, I think our general discomfort with those things is part of the way that we've held on to those Gnostic, again, I call them flavors, in our in our spiritual uh, teachings and the way we form people spiritually in our discipleship. Um, we feel like bodies are chaotic and unruly. And one response to that is that we want to dominate and control them. And that often leads um, to experiences of suppression or repression, right? It doesn't lead, it doesn't lead to pe people experiencing um, good fruit from those, from that 
kind of repressed and uh, suppressed and repressed um, reality. So how does this play out in different ways? Um, so I mentioned sexuality earlier. Uh, it plays out in that realm when we attach shame uh, to normal curiosity and development, right? We do this to our kids and we do this to our young, uh, young people. Um, I could say a lot about that. That's what I'm going to say about that this morning. But um, we attach shame to normal curiosity and development. Um, and then we're shocked that there's entire generations of people that want nothing to do with our spiritual teachings of practices after living through that. Um, how does this play out in other structures in society? Well, we teach people to hate their bodies. Uh, specifically, this plays out. I'm a woman, so I'm going to speak to that experience. But I think this impacts all people. So um, Eurocentric beauty standards are steeped in white body supremacy and they impact all people. Right. They impact all people negatively. Um, it also plays out in the ways we want to control what other people do with their bodies. And we catastrophize, which is a fancy therapy way of saying we assume the worst and we play things out to their worst possible conclusions. And we do that over and over again when we imagine what will happen, right? If the guardrails aren't in place or if we're not the ones uh, enacting that control or teaching the need um, for control. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying, I'm not speaking against boundaries. I'm not uh, speaking against finding healthy um, healthy ways to invite people into um, exploring who they are, exploring their bodies. But I am saying that we often, um, in our desire to control and dominate, we call that boundary and then we feel okay about it. And I, I'm suggesting, I think we need to interrogate those things and we need to ask what's the fruit of that? What's the fruit in people's lived experiences? Um, the second thing that I thought about coming out of this image of Jesus returning in a body right after death and resurrection before ascension um, is that it feels like um, it feels like an invitation to be reminded that bodies tell us something. They have messages to deliver. Jesus's physical body is the thing that tells the message that he is actually a human, that he is actually resurrected. Um, we can learn to listen to our bodies with compassion and add of that to grow compassion for other people's bodies and other communities' bodies. I want to give a disclaimer here about the way that trauma impacts our relationship with our bodies and our view of bodies. Um, so we spend so much time in church circles preaching about the horrors of what results when we don't control our chaotic bodies. But I think we need more preaching to help people and to listen to pe to help people be heard whose bodies have been harmed, exploited and abused by others. We need much better articulations of the way Jesus's bodily experience um, actually centers those who have been sinned against in their bodies and the ways that that is impacted um, how they view and relate to their bodies. Um, I am not going to do that in this, uh, in what I'm sharing this morning, but I wanted to name that clearly because it matters. Um, either way, right, whether your body has been on the receiving end of trauma or not, um, there are real life consequences when we internalize a message that our bodies aren't that important and so we don't have to listen to them or we don't know how to listen to them or that we've been taught that our body is actually the ultimate enemy. I think this sets us up to view other people's bodies and other communities' bodies as enemy as well. Um, so again, that doesn't tell the whole story, but I think there's ways like we have to examine what are those beliefs that underlie the way we play out these scripts um, with our own bodies and with others. Um, so a few years ago, 
part of my journey of learning to listen to my own body came uh, because I woke up one day in incredible abdominal pain, like pain I'd never experienced before. I am like feeling hot and cold all at the same time. Like something is happening in my gut that I do not recognize. Um, And rather than just decide I'm going to ignore that because it did pass. It wasn't consistent. Like it was like this wave of something and then it went away. But I decided to go to my doctor because I'm scared because I'm like, what is this? I um, full confession as well. I'm someone who catastrophizes all the time. So I did feel that pain and thought, oh, no, what is this? Right. Like this is probably a terrible disease. I better get it checked out. So I go to the doctor, explain my symptoms, and the doctor, um, it was someone I'd never seen before. I didn't have a primary care physician at the time. So it's, right, they've never met me. They don't know my health history. I'm just showing up describing pain um, and describing that it's never happened before. Um, and they're like, well, I don't know. And what they, what, they, uh, what they diagnosed me as is having something, some kind of flu. So he sent me home and said, uh, take some ibuprofen this week. Um, Now, I will point out that um, women, right, are often not believed when we describe physical pain by the medical establishment. That's a thing. Um, People of color, particularly black people, are not believed when they describe pain in a medical, right, by the medical establishment. Um, I've seen Dr. Alice post things about, um, right, maternal mortality rates for black mothers, um, medical interventions that are not given to black patients. So anyway, that's some of the context, right, backdrop of my experience dealing with a doctor who in some ways did not believe what I was telling him about my experience. Um, That is small in comparison to what other people uh, live through and experience, but I think it matters. So I go home and for the next week, I notice that every time I eat something, that same flare-up happens, right? Chills, cold sweat, intense cramping and pain in my abdomen um, to the point that I just stop eating or I'm eating like banana and toast until even that leads to the same response. I am popping ibuprofen like my life depends on it, right? I'm maxing out ibuprofen dose for an entire week. And finally, um, the weekend hits and it's a weekend that we have a student conference and I'm supposed to teach something. And uh, that Friday that Ben leaves for this student retreat, he goes, there's no way you can go. Like, why don't you stay home? I'll take Zeke, who's, you know, 13 months old at the time. He says, I'll take Zeke to this conference. You just rest. If you feel better tomorrow, drive out to the camp. And stupidly, I think, yeah, that seems like that's going to be a reality tomorrow morning. So I pop my ibuprofen again. I go to sleep and I wake up feeling terrible. So I call Ben. I say, hey, this isn't happening. I'm calling a doctor again. So I call um, an emergency nurse line at OHSU, describe my symptoms, and the nurse says, I'll talk to a doctor, I'll get back to you. And they call me back, and the nurse, the doctor says, I am concerned because everything you're describing tells me that something's going on with your gallbladder. You have maxed out, right, you're maxing out pain pills, so you're just suppressing, you're suppressing uh, what is actually, you're suppressing your awareness of what's happening, and it's the weekend, and so I just feel concerned that if you continue on this path, your gallbladder could explode if we don't get you in here to look at you, and um, you were misdiagnosed, and so I want, I know you don't want to, I know you probably don't want to come to the emergency room, but I need you to come in and get checked out. So at that point, um, I text my neighbor, Alex Moore, <laughs> and ask, can you drive me to the ER? Because Ben is gone and I am not supposed to be driving at this point, according to the doctor. So Alex graciously takes me down uh, to the OHSU emergency room. 
um, where I'm examined. And yes, they find gallstones and uh, they perform surgery the next day to remove my, my gallbladder. Um, that was my experience of realizing that my body had things that it was trying to communicate to me. And I was really good at trying to ignore that or listening when a medical professional told me to medicate that, right? And that it would all go away. And the reality is it didn't go away, right? It required a bigger intervention. Um, but to me, that experience has lingered with me because um, it it was this stark moment of realizing I have believed some things about my body that I think I need to examine. And I think I would like a different relationship with my physical self as a result of that experience. So, um, my invitation for us this week, right, even as we uh, continue to find meaningful ways to grieve, engage what's happening in the world, care for loved ones, right, uh, loved ones and people in our access community that have felt, right, who have felt the impact of this week in unique ways because of the bodies they exist in, right, the bodies their friends and neighbors exist in, their family, their children, um, I want us to press into examining what messages we believe about our physical selves, right? And how those play out. I think it is hard to show compassion to other bodies in practical ways, to show compassion to other communities' bodies um, if we are at war with our own bodies in some way. So my invitation to us is that we would uh, grow in compassion towards our physical selves. And here are some practical ways I'd like to invite us to do that. I would like us to notice the thoughts and feelings that you direct towards your bodies and to other bodies as you interact with them this week. Just pay attention. What am I thinking? What am I saying to myself? What am I thinking in my head about the other bodies I see? And then to ask the follow-up question of what do those thoughts and feelings tell me about what I believe about bodies? What are the beliefs that are underlying those thoughts and feelings? And perhaps if you feel like practicing some vulnerability, share those with somebody you trust, right? And invite the spirit to reveal next steps. Maybe you need space to grieve, right? For what has been communicated to you about your physical reality. Um, maybe you need space um, to try a new practice that helps you feel at home in your physical body. I don't know what that will be, but I think that we can invite other people into that with us and we can trust that the spirit will lead. The second invitation I have is to pay attention to the narratives um, that you tell yourself about other people's bodies and other communities' bodies who experience the world differently than yours. Are your narratives rooted in compassion and trying to understand other people's lived experiences? Or are the stories you tell yourself rooted in fear, rooted in a desire to control or a need to dominate other people's um, bodies? Is there a tangible action that you could take to demonstrate compassionate care, right? In places where you have relationship. Um, so one way I did this this week, right? And again, I share this not as like, this is the end all be all. It was really like, I don't know what else to do, but this is one small thing I can do. Um, I sent some gift cards via DoorDash um, to the black women that I am closest to in my life this week, simply as a gesture to say, be fed, be cared for, right? Eat something that feels good to your body um, in this week where you are experiencing um the narrative playing out again in the world that your body is less valuable and less worthy of care. 
And then my last invitation is to do something that makes your body feel good and to be open to the various ways that could play out. Um, I have recently been, uh, I guess, bitten by a bug that tells me I'd like to roller skate more regularly. So as a kid, I used to um, choreograph elaborate routines to Mariah Carey songs on my rollerblades in my front driveway with my sister and my neighbor, Justin, right? Hours spent blasting from our stereos and again, choreographing what can only be called like dance routines on wheels, right? Um, And I have thought about like something I would like to do with my body these days to experience play and joy and fun is roller skates. I'm just going to make a fool of myself in my front yard and let my children laugh at me. Um, I will say this time I'm going to do it with elbow pads and knee guards because um, I'm turning 40 this year and I don't need to end up in a helmet. Yes, we'll say I, I have a helmet because I don't want to end up in the ER because of a roller skating debacle. So um, that's how that's playing out for me. I'm not going to put parameters on how that might play out for you. But I think one practical way that we can practice compassion towards our own body is to allow our bodies and feel permission to feel joy and pleasure and play and fun and to let that be holy. Um, So my invitation to us is to um, allow Jesus to lead us. Um, Jesus who chose to live a bodily reality and didn't seem to count that as a burden or an inconvenience or something he had to, um, right, begrudgingly put on for the sake of the terrible chaotic bodies of humanity, right? That's not, that's not the story I see playing out. Um, Jesus who showed up in bodily form after his death, right, throughout his whole life, Um, invites us into more compassion towards our own bodies, towards the bodies of those we interact with regularly, and towards entire communities whose bodies are viewed as disposable, right, in our system. How might that increase our connection to one another and to our creator? How might that undo, right, and untangle us um, from some of the inheritance that we've received around dualism and this Gnostic flavor Um, that at least for me, and I think for many, uh, is starting to leave such a bad taste that we just are ready to spit it out, right? We're ready to be done with that. We're ready to untangle from that. Um, So let me pray for us. And then um, Nate's going to offer a benediction. And then we will uh, send us into breakout rooms to process some of these things. God, we um, come before you today as physical beings Um, who are sometimes deeply disturbed by our own creatureliness, by the chaos that we encounter in ourselves, in our own bodies, um, by the chaos we see in bodies around us, um, by our deep suspicion um, that somehow the pathway uh, to freedom and joy is around control, right? And control and domination towards ourselves and towards others, um, When really, I think you invite us uh, into curiosity, into freedom to explore, um, into helping one another uh, listen for boundaries that come from the spirit, but are rooted in our very different lived experiences in our bodies um, that leaves actually more room, that there is more uh, expansiveness in that experience than perhaps we've been led to believe Um, So Jesus, I also recognize that that lands with each of us very differently um, because of who we are, because of how we're wired. And so um, 
I ask that because of the goodness of your spirit in whatever way you want to invite us practically to practice tangible, uh, tangible compassion towards ourselves um, and towards others this week, that you would speak really clearly to each of us about what that could look like um, and that there would be a lot of creativity in that, um, that we would discover more of you through that process and more connection with one another. This is in your name, Jesus, in in the name of you who came as a body, as a lived human body um, and walked the full extent of that journey, even to come back in a body after you rose. We thank you for that story, Jesus. We thank you how it uh, invites us to uh, interrupt and disrupt um, the scripts that we've received and that we live out that may not um, may not match with a message that our bodies were made good. In your name. Amen.